You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's sermon. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31. That's a big number. We've kind of worked our way through Genesis here. We still have still plenty to go, but uh, we're working our way here. Remember, the uh, first couple chapters, people wondered if we'd ever get, get through it. Uh, but uh, here we are, we're up to chapter 31, we're on verses uh, 17 through 55 today. Let's stand for the reading of our scripture passage today for our sermon. Chapter 31, beginning at verse 17, hear the word of the Lord. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock and his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. The God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. Why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. And I have not eaten the ram of your flocks. What was torn by wild beast I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day that he consumed me. 
and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jeger Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, The Lord watched between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Amen. You may be seated. We continue our Genesis series. We continue our part that's going through Jacob's life. But the subsection on Laban comes here to a close. We've seen Jacob and Laban wrestling throughout their relationship. That wrestling will finally come to an end in our passage today. Jacob will leave Padan Aram. He'll leave the home of Laban. He'll go and return back to his home in Canaan, in the Promised Land. And yet how Jacob leaves it will spark this final confrontation between him and Laban. That, by the grace of God, will end with a covenant of peace between the two. That will clear the way for Jacob to finally return uh, to finish his journey back to Canaan. Well, let's consider our first point today, looking at verses 17 to 35. That's where we'll start. We're going to see Jacob there flee Padan Aran. Recall last week, the reason why he's leaving at this point is because Jacob had received a revelation from God. God had told him it was time for him to return back to Canaan. Remember, he also Jacob also discussed this with his wives first. They fully agreed with him. They fully supported the decision. This is just by way of reminder from last week. And so we see that in verses 17 and 18, he, Jacob packs everything up, 
and leaves. And I want you to you know, understand from here as well that the text is describing that he's packing up his own possessions. In other words, the things he has earned and acquired during the time. It's not in any question here of whether he was stealing things. Just, just want to make sure that's very clear here. He's taking up what is his and heads on out. Heads back to, head toward uh, where his father Isaac was in the land of Canaan. But then in verses 19 through 21, we get a little bit additional detail. We see the manner in which Jacob leaves. It describes him as fleeing from Laban. And I, I looked it up. I, I tried to say, is there any other way you might in, in translate fleeing here? And no, this is, this is really what it sounds like. The language is that he is fleeing. Kind of like the langu- same language as when he fled from Esau back when he left in the first place. Now, on his way home, he's fleeing from Laban. Jacob leaves town when Laban is away shearing his sheep. In other words, he doesn't say goodbye. None of that sort of parting farewells of anything of that sort. And the text tells us how to understand this in verse 20. It says that Jacob tricked Laban. There's actually an idiom being used there when it says Jacob tricked Laban. You can see it in your footnote. It says that Jacob stole Laban's heart. But it's an idiom that means here, and it's clear in context, it means here that he tricked him by not telling him that he was leaving. In other words, that's why he stole his heart. He's referring to being tricked. And of course, the context is he's tricked by not telling him that he's leaving. I I think we we should see this as another less than commendable action of Jacob. It may be a very understandable action of Jacob. Might have been what you had wanted to have done if you were uh, Jacob. We know the relationship between Jacob and Laban. We know it has been a difficult one. Um, We know that there's probably legitimate concerns that Jacob's fear that Laban won't let him go uh, is, 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 is maybe a very real concern. But it is also very much in character for what we've seen of Jacob. right? For him to leave with another sort of deception. And so, to clarify, it was right for him to go. God, in fact, told him to go. But how he does it, I would say it's not above reproach in how he goes and leaves. And then we have this interesting side note about Rachel how she steals her father's idols in verse 19. Now let's make, make uh, you know, clear the text does not tell us why she stole them. There have been a number of suggestions uh, that are out there. We need to be careful when the text doesn't tell us to not impute motives when we don't know what, what the motive was. Again, some of the suggestions that have been made, maybe she stole them because her heart still partially at least trusted in the false gods of her father. If I had to pick, I'd, 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 I'd lean toward that for other reasons, but, but the text doesn't actually tell us the reason. Uh, others have suggested maybe she stole them because she said there was a monetary value to them. She could sell them later. Um, maybe she stole them because she wanted to deprive her father from them. 
Clearly, the text reminded us earlier, she, the girls are not happy with their father. Uh, maybe she falsely thought that this would improve their chances of getting away if dad didn't have his idols to, to pray to. Again, we aren't told why she took them. text doesn't tell us. But what we can note, again, this is always the, the, the interpretation point, right? What can we see from the text? The text parallels her stealing of the idols with what Jacob does in tricking dad of Laban. Remember I told you the idiom? How, how Jacob stole Laban's heart is the way the text puts it. So, so Rachel steals Laban's gods, her, his idols. He steals Laban's heart. See, the text is putting those two in contrast. And I think what we're supposed to see is that there's a sort of uh, allegiance here. right? They both stand united together against Laban. They have a sort of solidarity as these sort of parting shots against Laban as they leave. Jacob and also his wife continue to wrestle with Laban even as they leave. So the text tells us that they end up with a three-day head start on Laban. Verse 23, Laban then finds out and he goes on pursuit. Takes him seven days to catch up, but he does eventually catch up. Of course, you could imagine if they've got all these flocks, they can't move quite as quick. So Laban catches up. He overtakes them in the hill country of Gilead. This was quite a long way that they had already made. Jacob had to have been moving with all these flocks. That would have been no small feat. This was a long distance for them to cover in this time. He was basically almost all the way back at this point. Almost. It's like if you're Jacob and if you were traveling from here to Los Angeles, this was like he made it to the grapevine. That's pretty far. And that's when Laban overtakes him. Laban gets there. And notice Laban rebukes Jacob, verse 26. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and not tell me? He also accuses him falsely. He accuses him of stealing his daughters, basically. You know, if you've been kind of paying attention along the way here and noticing the way that little things get reprised in a little bit different ways at times that you see some common themes. This section, this passage, has some similarity back to some problems we saw with Abraham and Isaac. Remember, Abraham and Isaac have some passages where they did things that they shouldn't have done, and they get admonished for them as well. Remember, I have in mind, for example, Genesis 20, Abraham lies to Abimelech. <coughs> about his wife being just his sister. Or Genesis 26, Isaac basically does the same sort of thing. And you might remember back then I told you, I said, uh, even though the text doesn't explicitly tell us that Abraham and Isaac did something bad, what we see in those texts is that the pagans chastise them and admonish them. And if you know the pagans are telling you you did something bad, that should really sting and here, Jacob gets admonished by Laban in a somewhat similar way for his own duplicitous actions. 
Notice this besetting sin even in the family of God's people of lying, of tricking, of deception. Well, in another display of God's grace, even to sinners like Jacob, God again came to the aid of Jacob. Just like God came to the aid of Abraham and Isaac in those chapters I just told you about. Because we see in verse 24, the night before Laban meets up with Jacob, God appears to him in a dream, appears to Laban in a dream, gives him this grave warning. Remember how God appeared to Abimelech in a dream. Gave him a warning. See some similarities there. Um, God tells Laban, don't say anything to Jacob, good or bad. I think there's another idiom going on here. Basically, that God is saying, don't try to get Jacob to change his mind. In either a good or a bad approach. In other words, it's not that Jacob... Or excuse me, it's not that Laban can't speak at all to Jacob, because clearly the text shows Laban's talking to Jacob and doesn't think that that's being forbidden here. But rather, Laban's not trying to get Jacob to change his mind. And you could think about think about how, how Laban could have tried to do that in an either a positive or a negative sort of way, right? How could Laban have shown up and tried to get Jacob to come back? Well, he could have threatened Jacob with evil. You're coming back now or I'm destroying you. Or he could have tried a carrot, right? He could have tried to entice Jacob in some good way. Come back and I'll make it worth your while. But God forbids Laban from doing either of that. And so Laban is smart enough to recognize to not disobey God on this. Laban instead explains to Jacob that he will not do him any harm because of it. Verse 29. And this confession by Laban might, might impress us that he's so keen to listen to God. You might at first, in other words, think, wow, Laban's doing a good job there, right? Until we also see that Laban is, seems to be at least that uh, similarly concerned, you stole my idols. Right? So, great job, Laban, at listening to God in the dream. Really? You're that concerned about these idols? And so that's then this, you know, the, the passage, this little episode here where Laban searches and searches and searches and can't find his idols. That reminds us that Laban is not a follower of the one true God. He may in some sense, obviously in some sense, recognizes the Lord as the God of Abraham and Isaac. Probably in his sort of thinking, it's probably sort of a polytheistic thinking that he has a certain respect for Abraham and Isaac's God, but not wanting to acknowledge his God as the only God. That's probably along the lines of his thinking. But this passage, as you read this, you're supposed to, you're supposed to see it a bit comical at this point, to laugh that Laban's so-called gods could be hidden in such a, a frankly, comical ruse by Rachel. Again, not good that Rachel is doing that, but it's also telling about that one's gods could be so hidden. Rachel apparently has learned how to deceive well. Uh, she's got some good role models in that regard, apparently, uh, both uh, Laban and her husband. 
And of course, in case you didn't understand, I was, that's a negative thing, by the way, just to make sure you understand that, right? Well, let's turn now to our second point. Consider verses 36 to 44. Uh, this is where we now see Jacob raise his complaint. Right? He's now going to go on the offense and responding to Laban. He's going to complain rather boldly. Laban had his opportunity to complain. Now Jacob responds. Uh, look at the context of Jacob's response. Laban has called Jacob a thief. Right? That's the context. Laban's come saying, you're a thief. He's accused him of stealing idols, and no proof could be found. Of course, we know they were there, but, but it doesn't change the fact God hid them, and, 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 and they couldn't be found. Jacob is also accused of stealing the daughters, and verse 43, Laban basically claims that everything that Jacob has really belongs to Laban. And so Laban essentially calls Jacob a thief and essentially points to his, implies that his fleeing is just how you'd expect a thief to flee. Now, on a related note, there, the word in Hebrew for stealing appears seven times in this passage with all sorts of uses, but it's there a lot in this passage. It's a theme that's being brought into here. You know, who's stealing from who? I would remind you also of a similar sort of concept that might be in mind is uh, go back to Genesis 14. That's when Abraham refused any compensation from the king of Sodom. He said he didn't want, the, Abraham said he didn't want the king of Sodom to say that he made Abraham rich. Here Abraham's seed is being accused of stealing and J Laban says Jacob is only rich because he took everything that belonged to Laban, stole it. So Jacob goes on the offense with his response. First, Jacob berates Laban because you claim we stole your idols, but your idols haven't been recovered. So that's his beginning. He invites them to offer any proof. You've got all these witnesses. Is there any proof that I've stolen something from you? Which, of course, again, is more of a commentary on the worthless power of Laban's gods over anything else. But uh, Laban then goes on, excuse me, Jacob then goes on to recount his 20-some years of service to Laban. Uh, Jacob mentions the quality of his work. Laban's livestock fared well under Jacob's care. He never pilfered any of the animals for himself. Jacob even says that if, if, one, if something happened to one of the animals under his care, he paid for it himself. He bore the loss of any animals at his own expense, which would have surely been above and beyond the duty of a hired shepherd at the time. Uh, he goes on to explain how difficult the work had been. Heat and cold affected him miserably. And Jacob then turns to deal with the wages. He says they agreed on the wages, but they agreed on the wages, I guess, first with the daughters, right? 14 years for his daughters. But then the last six, they had this profit-sharing arrangement, and, and Laban kept changing the terms. When he says 10, I think that's probably don't necessarily mean actual 10, but probably just means he kept changing the terms a number of times. And so we saw Laban uh, do that with the daughters even, right? In other words, if, if you didn't believe that Laban would change the terms of the deal for those last six years, remember, he already did it with the daughters. 
I agree to give you Rachel after seven years, and Laban changed the deal without even checking, right? So, so we know this is all within character of what we know of Laban. But then you have to love what Jacob does here. Because so far, what Jacob has done in his rebuttal is to emphasize his own work, right? What Jacob did. But then Jacob turns it back to talk about God. Look at verse 42. He credits the God of his fathers as being on his side. Jacob describes Laban's treatment of him as affliction. But Jacob says that the God of his fathers has, has protected him from all that affliction. This is a huge recognition on Jacob's part. I've been trying to point us out as we go along the way that you see Jacob from early childhood as he grows up. He's growing in his relationship with the Lord. But there's been a lot of need for growing along the way. And this is another element of, of seeing signs of growth. Jacob rightly credits God for his victory over Laban. Laban and Jacob wrestled much, but it was ultimately God that gave Jacob the victory. And Jacob even further hints at that when he mentions, describes his God as the fear of Isaac, like the God of his father Abraham and the fear of Isaac. That's not a term uh, to describe God elsewhere used, right? This is the first time we see that title being used, and it's used twice, the fear of Isaac. And I think it's implied, remember the guy who, or should you remember the God who appeared to you in the dream last night? That's the fear of Isaac. You should be afraid. Jake or Laban should fear the fear of Isaac. He should not try to afflict Jacob any further. That's what Jacob's uh, statement implies here. So Jacob now has a godly confidence in the Lord. That the Lord will deliver him from this house of bondage. You know, that's the kind of language that he's been under a sort of a house of bondage. That God's exiting him from this now. See in Exodus foreshadowing here. So Laban's reply to Jacob's complaint, so I'm sorry, Laban then replies to Jacob, right? Laban's reply to Jacob here, not very commendable. Look at verse 43. If you're looking for an example of how to repent, this isn't your example. Because basically after Jacob gives his rebuttal, Laban replies, he maintains everything is his. The daughters are mine. The children are mine. All of this is mine. Yet, Laban does then acknowledge in light of the circumstances, he doesn't know what else he can do. So what he offers then is a covenant. Covenant of peace. And, and in terms of that aspect, that they would enter into a covenant of peace, in and of itself, that's a commendable uh, thing, a wise thing. But of course, I think we should understand the only reason why Laban's willing to do this at this point is because Laban doesn't see any other option. Laban doesn't come across as repentant. Rather, Laban is someone who's always out there trying to maneuver things, trying to strategize. How can he get ahead? And you finally get to the chess game and you realize, I don't have any other move left. And I think that's where he's gotten to at this point. 
is I think actually the covenanting is probably in Laban's mind his final move. Right? All I can do at this point is hope for peace. So that leads us to our third point, uh, to look at verses 44 through 55, to consider this covenant that they enter into. Here we have all the typical features of a covenant. Stones are set up as a pillar. They are serving as a witness to the covenant. There's a covenant meal. That's a very common feature of covenants. have a covenant meal. It expresses the peace in the covenant between the parties. There are also stipulations in the covenant. Again, covenants typically have some sort of stipulations. And the stipulations are twofold here. One, Laban demands that Jacob not take any other wives and treat his daughters well. Finally, we see a little proper concern by dad for his daughters. And then the second thing is they set up a boundary. And that location there is going to be this sort of boundary marker between the two families. Neither side should cross over the other in order to harm each other. And I think that is the clarification there. It's not to say that they couldn't step one foot over and that's it. You're not supposed to go across to harm each other is the point. Uh, But clearly Laban fears Jacob might continue his trajectory of growing, growing, growing more and more rich and powerful, and at some point might say, I've, I still remember how bad of a trouble Laban gave me and decide to come back and repay, repay Laban, perturb Laban. So I, I, I think that's part of Laban's thinking here. He's seeking an oath so that there won't be any situation in the future where one side will go to harm the other. And so that's the last component of the covenant here. Covenants usually involve oaths. In other words, an oath is more than just a promise, right? An oath usually involves invoking the name of deity, of the divine. It's saying, even if we can't keep you accountable, you're you're calling God to keep you accountable to this covenant that you're making. And so Laban, of course, invokes the names of both family deities. He invokes the gods of his father Nahor and the god of Abraham, Jacob's grandfather. Jacob returns the oath, you see in verse 53. But you notice Jacob, commendably, only swears in the name of the one true God. There he employs that same name of the fear of Isaac. Now let me just address a question. In verse 53, in English it may not come across very clearly. And so the question that comes up in verse 53, is Laban invoking one God who happens to be the God of both Abraham and Nahor, or is he invoking the God of Abraham and the God, or I would, as you notice, I translated gods of Nahor. It's in the plural uh, in, in the Hebrew. Is he invoking two separate forms of, of deity? And I believe it's, the, it's that. The uh, language is all put in the plural, and it seems that uh, uh, the, the grammar itself would, would uh, lend itself to seeing Laban has two sets in mind. The context clearly tells us that. Not only the fact that Jacob only takes the fear of Isaac on as his name in swearing, but remember, Laban was the one talking about his idols just a moment ago, right? So... I think the idea here is that uh, they're both signing 
in the name of their religion, in the name of their God. But Jacob does it rightfully in the name of the one true God. And so with this covenant, the wrestling between Jacob and Laban in Genesis comes to an end. It started when Laban tricked Jacob by giving him Leah in marriage instead of Rachel. It continued through their business wranglings with each other, as we saw last chapter. And it comes here to a culmination, where despite how they both contributed in different ways to the wrestling, God blesses Jacob over Laban. But God not only blesses Jacob over Laban, God so works here that at the end result they have a peace. And Jacob, that enables Jacob to be able to return home as God promised when he left the promised land at Bethel that God would be with him and prosper him and God would bring him back to the promised land. And so we want to understand that ultimately, ultimately, why does the wrestling end? It's God who ends it. Just think what might have happened in today's chapter if Laban didn't get that dream the night before. Just think how different things would have been if all this entire time God hadn't been protecting Jacob through it all. God allowed, though, Jacob, that means, to go through this period of wrestling. But God does then bring this wrestling between Jacob and Laban here to a conclusion. When the dust clears, think of what's the result. Jacob not only has greatly prospered through it all, he's got his wives and children and all these flocks and all of that, but Jacob has learned through all of this more about trusting in the Lord. That's, I think, an important thing we want to make sure we understand. This was a long, difficult time in his life that God taught Jacob more about trusting in the Lord. And, and we see Jacob talking about the Lord now in ways that we didn't see him talking about 20 years in the past. Jacob still has spiritual growing to do, but God has been working on his heart through this season. You know, as we think about this boundary line that they set up here, Jacob and Laban in this covenant, this boundary line that distinguishes the sides, I'm reminded of our reading from Revelation that we did today. In case you didn't catch it, let me just summarize that reading from Revelation talked about in the age to come that only God's people will be able to enter the heavenly city of the new Jerusalem. It, it, it's, it's painted like a boundary line. That there are only God's people inside, and outside are all the evil people. And it colorfully describes that vision of, of the future as that those outside the city are these people described by that list of vices. It said that outside the city are the idolaters and the people who practice falsehood, for example. Think of our story. Think of this boundary line that divides Jacob and family from Laban and family. 
Laban was an idolater and someone who practiced falsehood. We can understand why he ended up on that side of the boundary. But pause for a moment and remember all the falsehoods that Jacob has given. Remember that even right now, Rachel's sitting on all those idols. Bring into the promised land. After she just lied, falsehood, lied about them. Why should Jacob and Rachel be on this side of the boundary line? Hopefully you know the answer. Only by the grace of God. Grace that ultimately came from the house of Jacob when Jesus comes into this world born to die on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of God's people. Even the sacrifice Jacob makes in our passage today in verse 54 looks ahead to Jesus' sacrifice to atone for the sins of Him and for Rachel's sins and for the sins of all of God's people. You see, God wasn't through yet with Jacob and Rachel. Later on, by the way, they will have a time where they get rid of all the, all the idols that are in the, among the house. God wasn't through yet with Jacob and Rachel, but they could end up on the right side of this boundary line only by the grace of God, grace that was continuing to work, grace that would ultimately come in Jesus. As for Laban, he may have a peace treaty with Jacob, but really, if you think about it, to separate from Jacob and to distance himself from Jacob really wasn't what was best for Laban. Laban, what he should have done, right, is not to maintain his claim that he was in the right. Laban should have had a repentant heart. He should have sought Jacob's forgiveness. He should have looked to truly love and bless Jacob. Remember, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. Maybe Laban should have actually asked Jacob, could I move back to the promised land with you? To be with the blessed line of Jacob would have been best for Laban and family. If you are an outsider today to God's people, if you have been on the wrong side of the boundary line of God's people, He invites you. Come, turn and believe in Jesus. Become a part of His chosen people and this blessed, saved family. In conclusion, we can look back on the lives of the people here and, and learn. Learn from their successes and learn from their mistakes. Let us look to live commendably. Let us look to live with integrity. Even when the world doesn't treat us that way, because we trust in God. As much as it depends upon us, let us look to live in peace with all men. Let us know that God is guiding us as that good shepherd. He's guiding us into that eternal promised land. We're not there yet, but God will see us there safely. He will ultimately vindicate us on that final day. But until then, let us be growing and trusting on Him, relying on Him, and looking to serve Him in this fallen world. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord, You have called us out of this fallen world. You have given us a new name. You have given us Your Word to guide us. We confess, Lord, how often we still live like the world lives. Please forgive us for Christ's sake. And thank You for the grace that You continue to put in our lives. Lord, we pray that You would continue to be with us and keep us. Help us to recognize how You're at work through all of this. Help us to see and thank You for all Your blessings. To give You the credit to learn during this pilgrimage. To learn to depend on You more. And so we pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.